Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. banks are broke. Oh, why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians to prison, it will continue. episode of Thriller Insider. Today is June 7th, 2021, and I'm finally back in Texas, baby. <laughs> Thank God for Texas. Uh, we just came back from the Miami Bitcoin conference this past weekend. It was a lot of fun. Uh, met a lot of people. Had a, had a really good time there. Worked our asses off to bring you guys some really great content. And... Uh, Gosh, let me tell you, there was a all sorts of shit going down. I'm, this is going to be a relatively explicit <laughs> cursing episode, so maybe move out the women and children <laughs> for this one. But I will say this this conference is was all over the place, right? It was all over the place. Whatever you saw on Twitter, whatever you saw on YouTube. Let me tell you, there was that, and then there was even more <laughs> behind the scenes stuff. There was other shit going on outside. There was uh, satellite events happening around the city. There's parties. There was yachts. There, <laughs> there's all sorts of shenanigans going on. Um, but but I will say this: I think everybody who went there had a good time, right? I. I I feel I feel sorry for the people that had to pay the full price, which was like, I don't know, I think I think it got as high as like eighteen hundred dollars a ticket. I feel sorry for those people, right? Because you had to wait in line. But if you were one of the people that bought an earlier ticket, yeah, I mean, I would say you you probably got more than what you paid for, <laughs> for sure. If you were one of the people that got the two hundred dollar ticket or the four hundred dollar ticket or even the five hundred dollar ticket. I would say you got more than your money's worth for sure this weekend. But if you're somebody who who paid the $1,800 ticket or the $1,700 ticket or, or bought it from some scalper, you know, for 0 0.002 BTC, well, then, you know, our hearts go out to you. <laughs> but 
with all that being said, today we're going to talk about day one at the Bitcoin conference. And so there's so many there's so many ways I could approach this, right? Because day one was a shit show, man. Let me tell you, it was a shit show. <laughs> it, it doesn't get any it doesn't get any more unorthodox. <laughs> um, you know, and this is this has really has nothing to do with with Bitcoin magazine. I think they did the absolute best they possibly fucking could have when it comes to building this conference. Like, there's just no way they could have planned for this many people. There's no way. Like, I, I think I think what what we realize now is is Bitcoin encompasses everybody, and I think these average people who are into uh, NFTs or uh, you know other shit coins i think i think <laughs> for them they saw the bitcoin conference and they were like yeah we're gonna go to that because they just automatically assumed that meant that too and that's not you know bitcoin magazine's fault right that just happens to be who who came to the <laughs> to, to the thing now i will say this too though as far as the 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 shilling and, and all that stuff going on i, I really think I don't think they could afford to put this on without those guys, honestly. Like, if you think about it, I, th I think the only person that I know of personally that puts on strictly a Bitcoin conference is Gary Leland at Bitblock Boom. And he does it with strictly only Bitcoin centric companies. And, uh, you know, I, I'm friends with Gary, but I don't know the inner workings of all that. But I would imagine that's very tough, right? So I will say this. I, I don't think a conference that big could have could have been that big without the, the money of, you know, of the Winklevoss twins. <laughs> right. Or or the money from, you know, from Eric Voorhees and, and his and his shitty exchange <laughs> shapeshift or whatever the fuck it's called. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, I, I don't think I don't think that conference could have been on without their money. Um, who knows? Maybe one day it can be. I'm just saying, like, I think it needed that that ad shilling money. Um, I will say, though, there's there was definitely some lines crossed and some double standards there. And I'm sure they'll fix that. But there are some other things we'll talk about in, in Birth Crypto Death. We'll, we're going to release an episode this weekend or not this weekend. Because my my mind, my dates are all mismatched right now. Uh, I don't even know what day it is. Um <laughs> Seriously, I haven't gotten like that much sleep. So we're going to release my whole kind of my experience going through everything and, and kind of give you my my rundown of my days and stuff like that. If you're interested in that, by the way. So you have a day one recap today and then a day two recap tomorrow with a birth crypto death. And then we still have to release that ESG episode and then we still have to release two more episodes. Right. So. We're still, we're, even though we're supposed to be on vacation in June, <laughs> Okar wants to keep going to finish out these last remaining episodes that he owes y'all because I'm a righteous dude, man. That's just what I do. And then once we get all those done, I will finally be able to enjoy the rest of my June, right? So let's, uh, let's get into the Bitcoin conference. I, I, I will say this right off the bat, like, when I when I came in, I was just shocked by the how big it was, right? Like it felt like a festival. It really did. It almost it reminded me of uh, 
of ACL, but a little bit smaller here, like Austin City Limits, but a little bit smaller, uh, kind of like Fun Fun Fest back in the day. Um, but it was still kind of cool. The only thing it was missing was just bands playing, I felt like, outside. Um, it totally could have been that. It really could have. Um, there was there was a lot of people there and you could barely move. Friday was heavily packed. It felt like there was like 20,000 people there. Um, and then Saturday, there was a lot less people. I think there's probably like 12 or 11 or 10,000. And like during the day, it slowly started thinning out even more and more and more. Uh, but Friday was just jam packed. The whole day was jam packed. Everybody was there Friday and Saturday was just like less and less. Um, and then the biggest news of the weekend came out on day two that I'm sure a lot of you already know about. And we'll discuss that tomorrow. But today... I'm going to bring you what I want to do is I didn't want to bring you the, you know, the stuff that everybody's already discussed. Right. I didn't want to bring you the shit that, you know, that's been talked about because I felt like that doesn't do anything. Like, I feel like there's there's so much crap that was on Twitter and I refuse to post it. Right. And I'm talking about the Mayweather shit and like the. um all the other shenanigans that went on with the stupid Doge kid, like I'm not going to post that shit on my Twitter. I'm not going to I'm not going to talk about it here in this podcast. That's not going to be done. I'm, I'm, I even hate bringing it up right now because to me, that's not important. Like that has nothing to do with the conference. Uh, to me, those people don't get mentioned. Right. Um, and going forward, we're, we're not going to bring that stuff up anymore. If if something like that happens, you'll you'll have to ask me on Telegram. And say, hey, Card, what, what happens to this section or this part? I noticed that you didn't put it and be like, yeah, because that guy's an idiot. <laughs> That's why he doesn't go in. Like idiots don't get attention. You know, I, I just I, I'm just really a hard ass on that. I just don't think idiots should get attention. And so when people do idiot things, no, you don't get attention. No, it's not how it works. Do great things. Right. Teach us something. Right. So what I wanted to do was cover the stuff that I felt was the most informing, the stuff that actually kind of got missed, I felt. And then the stuff that actually was probably the most controversial of the first day, which was the whole Jack, you know, talk where the lady came up and uh, was was talking about censorship. And that, that's going to be played at the very end of this of this podcast. But. I think that particular um, talk was was informing because uh, she was talking about a whole different thing compared to what Jack wanted to talk about. And she moved the conversation in that direction, whether people liked it or not, it happened. And um, so I, I saved that for the very end. But the, the bulk of this stuff is is really good stuff. I think that a lot of you will, will take away and be like, man. This is way different than what I would have gotten from just watching the, the YouTube stream. And, I, and that's my hope. Like, my hope is if you want to go watch some of these talks, they're on Bitcoin Magazine's YouTube. Right. But my hope is to bring you the stuff that I felt like are, are the, the nice little bits that are like the best bites, the best sound bites of it all. Right. And I, I feel like a lot of that got missed. And so my hope is just to display that here today on day one. Um, and then also, I will say, lightning has arrived. <laughs> that was really eye-opening to me how much lightning has come since almost a year ago, 
you know, when I was at Bitblock Boom and they were, they were talking about Lightning, like the the speed at which it has it has come is night and day. It's it's crazy. Um, there's so much more to learn. Um, I'm extremely fascinated by it now. Um, so I was able to get a Wiz talk on day one. And so I'm going to play that for you here at some point during this kind of, you know, delicate bite-sized chunks of audio. So you can kind of listen to it. But uh, yeah, let me let me get started on that now. So this is my interpretation of day one and what I thought was the best information of it all on day one. Okay. You wanna play games? Okay. I play with you. Come on. Okay. Do you wanna play rough? Okay. No. Say hello to my little friend! Welcome to Thriller Miami. Bitcoin 2021. Also, uh, this one's so lame. Fuck. If you haven't got a seat, you, you're meant to... The fire marshal says, well, you have to kind of leave, and there's two places outside you can go and watch it. I'm sorry. I know. Rules are rules. No, no. Anyway, listen. Fucking hell. We've got Max Kaiser, Fireside Chat, with Giga Chad, Michael Saylor. Come on! Matt, 
Max and I, we, uh, we uh, talked this morning to coordinate our outfit, and I wanted Max to wear black, and Max wanted me to wear white. So we agreed. Have a seat. All righty. Michael Saylor. Giga Chad. Max Kaiser, high priest of Bitcoin. (laughs) Father, I I have sinned. (laughs) My first question is, what does it feel like to be a newbie? You know, um... I, actually, I, I was going to tell you, I, I realized that I first bought Bitcoin one year ago yesterday, and so this is the end of my rookie year. Right on. All right, I wanted to get into that. So going back to around 2014, your friend Eric Weiss, he was talking to you about Bitcoin. You kind of uh, ignored it. Uh, then in 2020, he mentioned it again. And within a few weeks, you were buying tens of thousands of Bitcoin for you and your company. What the fuck happened? Well, I guess I lost faith in all of my traditional investment strategies. You know, I... I uh, I didn't really think much about uh, the dollar and about inflation. I thought there was no inflation, and I thought I could just sit and own big tech companies and the world would work itself out. And I guess around March, everything changed, and the monetary inflation rate tripled, and it became pretty clear that uh, the big tech trade was a crowded trade. You know, at the point that my niece in her early 20s was telling me about Apple stock. You know, I figured that maybe it wasn't, uh, it wasn't cutting edge. So I looked around and I discovered Bitcoin. And when I discovered Bitcoin, I thought, well, this is digital gold on a big tech monetary network and it's going to grow by a factor of 100. And then I thought, well, I should buy as much as I can. And, and what I tell people even this day is, is while I was buying it, And I was thinking, I have to buy as fast as I can, as much as I can, because someone else might figure this out before, and then I won't be able to. And uh, Okay, that's really interesting for the shareholders. But, I mean, my understanding is that you were visited by the ghost of Satoshi at night and came to you in a dream and converted you. That's not the story. Yeah, Satoshi speaking through all of... (laughs) her or his disciples on YouTube. Your laser eyes are pointed right at my brain right now. Are you stealing my private keys? No, you should keep your private keys. This should save me. I don't want your private keys. Really? Okay, well, we just met, so I guess that would be a bit forward. Let's, uh, let's move on to some recent comments you've made. Um, <clears throat> you were on the Bill Ma- talking about Bill Maher recently, and you said the following. There's something cruel and tasteless about uh, a, a, a rich white male who wants to deprive billions of poor men, women, and children in Africa, Asia, South America of basic human right 
of economic self-preservation so they can generate a few laughs. That's a very kind of profound thing to say. And can you just talk a little bit about this idea of property rights for billions around the world and what Bitcoin offers and how you see that? You know, I think after you study Bitcoin, the light bulb goes off. And what I realized is anybody on earth that wanted to own anything, that wanted to own some property, has a choice. You can buy land somewhere, but someone can tax it and take it away from you. You can buy gold, but someone can take it away from you. You can buy stocks, but you can never take possession of it. You can buy debt, you can never take possession of it. You can buy jewelry, people will take it away from you. And Bitcoin is the apex property of the human race. It's the first time we figured out how to create true property that you can take possession of with, with full custodial rights, that's least likely to be impaired, that's most mobile. And so, yeah, it doesn't matter if you have a billion dollars. If you have a billion dollars, you can buy a building in Manhattan or Bitcoin, you'd rather have the Bitcoin. And it doesn't matter if you have $387 if you have $387, you can still buy the Bitcoin, take it anywhere. And if you compare that to buying silver or gold or land or a stock, your custodial and your property rights are impaired by everything else. And so I think Bitcoin is, is truly a, a seminal invention of the human race because for the first time in human history, we can grant property rights to 8 billion people. And I, you know, that's what I think is cool. The current downturn is unique in that it is attributable to the virus and the steps taken to limit its fall. At this time, high inflation was not a problem. There was no economy-threatening bubble to pop and no unsustainable boom to bust. The virus is the cause, not the usual suspects. The virus is the cause, not the usual suspects. The virus, 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 not the usual suspects. The usual suspects. The usual suspects. I really think about um, it from a fundamental perspective, which is uh, I key in on the pricing mechanism. Um, and I talk about, and I think this is key to your point, which is that a monetary good is the most important single good uh, in an economic structure. And that if I think about the pricing mechanism, which is oftentimes overlooked, um, it is that a price system only emerges once a large group of people converge on a common form of money. And that money very naturally monopolizes due, due to its function and, and due to the problem that it solves. And what's happening right now is that the world is, a, is converging on a new monetary standard uh, in Bitcoin. And it's doing so because it has a perfectly inelastic fixed supply of 21 million. And so when I think about that question, I think about it anchored to that point. And that what that ultimately means is that... Bitcoin's price mechanism will be more perfect than any price mechanism that's ever existed. And that it will also be one that cannot be manipulated. Uh, and that also the, the most important function in my mind is that the cost of credit, the cost of money and the cost of credit cannot be manipulated. So then if I come to your question of what do I expect that future world to look like, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to visualize the specificity, but I'd say the most obvious thing that will happen is that the credit system 
will be a fraction of what it is today, a very, very small fraction. And that uh, if the price mechanism, which money communicates, is the primary way that information is delivered to all human beings in the world, um, that the base money will be communicating that information rather than function of credit. And that when we look back, I think Bitcoin's stability will prove that central banks were the cause of financial instability and financial crisis, and we won't see that anymore, um, and that history will be written by the winners. It's a very optimistic answer. <laughs> Dan, uh, you know, a lot of people are uncertain about how we get to this future, and I'm curious sort of in broad strokes how you imagine we get to a Bitcoin standard. What, what does the transition, transition look like, and... What, what kind of institutions will come on board? Uh, what path do we take to get to a Bitcoin standard? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And we actually have a very simple answer for it. Number go up. Number go up technology is a very powerful piece of technology. It's the price. As the price grows higher, more people become aware of it and buy in anticipation of the price continuing to climb. This is called FOMO. So Bitcoin has something called like a viral loop. This is a marketing terminology for you tell your friends about a product or service, then they tell their friends about a product or service. And that mechanism is the primary acquisition mechanism uh, during these Bitcoin bull runs that have brought in 10, million users. So this is how Bitcoin will likely continue to gain adoption through these market cycles that we see that occur every four years or so. So I think that the simple answer is the price. The price and the price increasing is the metric that defines how many people believe in Bitcoin. When Bitcoin was worth $10 back when I first got into it, there was very few people that believed in Bitcoin. And now it's in the tens of thousands. So that is representative of the aggregate network shared belief in it. And so I think that the price in these market cycles are the way that Bitcoin goes from where we're at now to a billion, multi-billion user world or multi-billion Bitcoiner world. Um, you know, the transitions to get there on the institutional front, I think, are really interesting. A lot of people go, okay, the institutions are here. That's a great, great thing. But is that, is that all? Is that it? Institutions bring about more retail adoption. Retail, that's you and me. We're retail traders. And so with institutional adoption, people look to institutions for legitimacy. We may, we may not, but a lot of the world still does. So as the institutions adopt Bitcoin and Bitcoin becomes globally recognized as a store of value or gold 2.0 asset, then more uh, regular people like us start to believe in it as well. So we're in the very beginning stages of that. The institutions have just arrived and validated Bitcoin as a new emergent gold. And I think that this is a really important moment for Bitcoin. And so in the future, we'll see that continue to climb in adoption in terms of Bitcoin becomes unanimously known as gold 2.0 or store of value. Uh, ubiquitous terminology for Bitcoin will be like, okay, yes, of course. Of course I have Bitcoin. Everyone does. So we're in the very beginning stages of that right now. Safe. Nation states seem fairly antagonistic towards Bitcoin and understandably so. It's not easy to, you can't debase it. It's very difficult to confiscate. What role does the nation state have under a Bitcoin standard? Would nation states still exist? Uh, would their role diminish? What would the world look like in terms of the nation state? I think if I were to think about it, uh, I, I would imagine that, it's, uh, that the nation state is going to head toward being more of a voluntary association. Um, rather than uh, the inflation financing governments, 
Um, in my opinion, what inflation financing governments allows governments to do is to spend first and ask questions and ask for forgiveness later, which works out very well for people in power, but doesn't work out very well for the citizens whose wealth is being devalued from the inflation. So I think a world in which government can't print money anymore in order to finance itself is a world in which it has to take taxes out of you first before it can spend them. And that makes things much more complicated. It's much easier if you can just print and spend than it is to actually try and go and take money from somebody's hand and then spend it. So I think um, you know, the balance of power that uh, money that is hard creates is much more in favor of the individual and then governments are going to have to effectively win the allegiance of citizens more convincingly. They're going to have to offer more um, compelling services and uh, less and fewer bad services to, in order to be able to attract people. I think political orders would be far more civilized in that there would be less to fight over as well. You know, politics wouldn't be so important and so vicious, uh, both domestically and internationally, because winning your local political uh, election does not allow you to print money. And that's really 99% of the fun if you're into politics. So if you take that away, <laughs> people are just not going to be so uh, vicious about fighting for politics. I can see the world um, focusing on more important and more productive things than politics and geopolitics if money is taken out of politics, if what determines the validity of your transaction is you know, cryptography and the actual possession of the balance rather than whether you're connected to the right people and whether you have the uh, right people in charge of the bank who lets you pass the transaction. So that's how I see it. Parker, our economy and the global economy is built on debt, massive amounts of debt. To get to a Bitcoin standard, Will there need to be massive debt liquidation? What happens to the economy? What happens to all the people who are hold, holding debt that's denominated in dollars or other fiat currencies? Well, first, sell all your bonds and buy Bitcoin. And that's, finan that's financial advice uh, and life advice. But uh, I think you know, one of the things, and, and it was part of my path that got me to Bitcoin. The first thing was meeting SAFE and he helped me understand monetary economics. And then I went on a deep rabbit hole down the Fed's monetary system. And when I came up the other side, it was that there's no way out, that there aren't necessarily going to be massive debt liquidations. Um, it's that they're going to, the, the Fed has a price stability mandate. And that while they don't have an explicit mandate to target asset prices, bonds, stocks, whatever it might be, uh, the credit system has grown so large, it's orders of magnitude larger than the base money, and it is the way that assets and allocations are made through the function of credit, um, that the credit system is the marginal price setter. So when the Fed has a price stability mandate, it has a mandate to maintain the size of the credit system. And that every time the credit system starts to slow down or even slightly contract, it effectively starts to collapse because of the degree of leverage. And that's what happened last March. That's what happened in 2008. That's why they have to print trillions of dollars. They have to print trillions of dollars and they will have to continue to print trillions of dollars to maintain the size of the credit system. So the nominal dollars of credit might ultimately pay, but your dollars are going to be worth a very, very small fraction until they're worth nothing. Uh, and that's why you should buy Bitcoin.
Okay, here's a $10 bill. This is garbage. This is garbage. That's going to zero. This is going to zero, too. Euros are going to zero. The yen's going to zero. The Chinese currency is going to zero. It's all going to zero against Bitcoin. If you don't understand that yet, you're going to be impoverished. You're going to be on the street. You're going to be begging. You're going to be out of business. You're going to be toast. You know that with the Bitcoin I have, I can buy any freaking senator or congressman I want. I make the laws. He who has the Bitcoin makes the laws, Rand. We're not going to just sit around and let the goddamn congressman tell us what to do. We've got the capital. We make the laws. We've got the Bitcoin. They we don't. The we got it. They don't. Do you understand? Bitcoin! <laughs> <laughs> so people say, why, you know, why do you want, why do you want to have Bitcoin? Freedom and trust. And then people say, well, when are you going to sell your Bitcoin? And I think, into what? <laughs> what would I ever? It's like saying, oh, you've got a bunch of euros. Let's turn them into drachma or French francs. Or let's take U.S. dollars and turn them into Confederate money. I mean, you just, <laughs> there's, there's no sense in it. You, you, if you've got Bitcoin, you've got the currency of the future. And so why try to change your currency of the future into the currency of the past? I mean, if, if you go forward 10 years and Bitcoin's technology does go through Moore's law, the, the accelerating technology, um, there will be no reason to own fiat money because you're going to be able to buy everything you want at the grocery store with Bitcoin. And if your choice is, I want a currency that is 100% um, stable, you know exactly how many there are out there, um, or and, and it's open, transparent, global, you know, you can use it anywhere, frictionless, or you want a currency that is tied to a government that, can, that is made up of people <laughs> who, uh, who really want to um, move, they can manipulate your currency, then you really do have, um, and, and they can inflate your currency, then you have uh, no choice. You would just say, well, I, I only want to operate in Bitcoin. There will be a time when people will say, I'm not going to take the dollar anymore sure. because I only want to take Bitcoin because I don't know how many they're going to print and I don't know whether it's worth it. And I'm going to take you a little further because the, one of the reasons I got so excited about Bitcoin is I met this guy from Argentina, Sebastian Serrano, started Ripio. He... Um, he said, during my life, my family's made and lost a fortune three times, and I'm only 30 years old. And I said, what do you mean? He said, all to currency manipulation by politicians. And so where's his incentive to operate in the Argentinian peso? There is no incentive there. There's no incentive to drive or build or be a great entrepreneur when you, you just know the government's going to take it away from you sometime. And, uh, and with Bitcoin, he can actually operate a business and build value in that business. And uh, <laughs> I think the Fed's speaking. Right. I, don't, I don't think they're giving us the curtain call yet, but just kind of take it a step further into this Bitcoin DeFi conversation. This is a fascinating conversation. So, Olaf, give us a little bit of your yeah, thoughts I mean, inside. And to add on to what you just said, Tim, it's always been very intuitive to me that kind of computer algorithmic money would replace centralized fiat money 
it's always it's just obvious kind of um, I do think there's a generational gap um, when you look at young people they all understand cryptocurrency it just makes sense um, whereas you know people say Bitcoin's complicated it is but um, the dollar is way more complicated um, and a lot of these policies that lead to inflation you know it's kind of a secret regressive tax um, asset owners see their assets appreciate in value through inflation whereas people that hold cash and dollars are the ones who are actually penalized and taxed through that inflation and so you know right now you're seeing you know why are we in sort of like an economic uh, depression but at the same time asset prices are at an all-time high and it's primarily because inflation is being reflected in those asset prices more than it is in more traditional ways of measuring inflation like the consumer price index. Come on, baby, mine. Just a little bit more pushes. Mine, mine, mine. Just a little bit. I can see it. I can see the head. I can see the head. There we come. There we go. Oh, look at that. Our very first Bitcoin. I'm so proud of you. It has your eyes. I'm going to call it my first Lambo. important to remember that Bitcoin is still trusting the, the majority of the hash power all the time. And so this is why mining needs to be very difficult and consume a ton of electricity and uh, it's because this is the only thing that secures the network. So there's there's some common FUD that says you need to, um, you know, Bitcoin uses a lot more electricity than some countries, some number of countries. But that's that's a good thing because that means even if those countries used all of their electricity to try and attack Bitcoin, they wouldn't be able to, right? Um, and, and so it just depends on, on who's uh, telling the story, how they can spin it. And likewise, on the opposite side, to keep those miners honest, um, verifying blocks needs to be as easy as possible. So, um, computationally simple on low-powered hardware. And so, how does that actually work? New transactions um, made by everybody um, are signed from your wallet, and once they're accepted by some Bitcoin nodes, they're validated, verified to um, conform to all the rules, and then they enter the mempool. Once they're in the mempool, the miners take those transactions out of the mempool. They can take whatever transactions they want, but of course they're going to want to take the most uh, expensive, the most valuable ones out, and they're going to want to include those in the blocks. And so there's validation on the transactions, then there's validation on the blocks, and the full nodes verify all of that data, everything in the, uh, the entire blockchain. And so any um, invalid blocks or transactions would just be rejected by nodes, and if you tried to do something, you would just get forked off the network, basically. Um, so so what, what are those rules exactly? What are, what are the full nodes uh, verifying? There's a few, uh, there's, a, there's a ton of consensus rules and, and also policies, but it's, it's been grouped into like the monetary policy rules, you know, enforcing the supply schedule. Some miner finds a block that says, I get a million Bitcoin, that would just be rejected. Uh, the transaction rules, verifying all the cryptographic signatures are legit and, uh, you know, nobody's double spending anything because that's uh, a huge part of Bitcoin. And another very important part is the block rules, which is um, enforcing the difficulty adjustment and more importantly, the block size limit. And the block size limit is something that um, was a huge, um, you know, debate. Um, There's a lot of propaganda and fighting a few years back, but basically, um, this is a common thing that, that most newcomers to Bitcoin don't understand. It's like, well, why is there a block size limit? Um, why don't we just make the blocks bigger and, and you know, what are you guys doing? Why, why would you make small blocks that limits the amount of transactions we can do? 
it's so we can have a network that looks like this, right? We want to be able to have an impenetrable force, fortress of uh, verification and validation. So if everybody's running a full node, um, we can verify everything, right? So even if you just have a tiny little Raspberry Pi, you want to be able to verify the entire blockchain and all the blocks and transactions in it so that um, we can keep the network honest. And um, this is this is what we're doing, right? Um, we have a small block size, which results in demand being greater than supply, right? Everybody wants to use Bitcoin, so there's a finite number of transactions that can fit into the block. The blocks only come about 10 minutes or so, so this creates a situation where the demand exceeds the supply. And so we have a transaction fee market. And this is a huge um, point of contention for a lot of people, but for example, just a few months ago, it cost over $20 to do a high priority Bitcoin transaction. And the lower priority transactions were just totally priced out of that work. And many people got upset about this and you know they don't want Bitcoin to price them out. So of course they're upset. But the fee market is very important and very good. Um, you can see it's been developing steadily. And this is important because after Bitcoin's inflation drops to zero, um, this huge uh, demand of fees, this is from uh, my site, Mempool.space, you, you can see that users are willing to pay $20 for a transaction and, and even much higher values sometimes when the network gets congested to get their transactions through. And this will compensate the miners after the, the block subsidy reward um, goes to zero and the inflation stops. So to compare it to the original fee uh, system, Bitcoin as a store value fixes the inflation problem by making inflation it fixes the seizure problem, the censorship problem. But because the transactions can become expensive, it's not the best medium of exchange for buying a coffee or you know even everyday transactions, a hundred dollars in size. And it's you, know, you have to you have to get transfigure um, transaction into the mempool. You have to like wait for it to get confirmed. Maybe you can use a high enough fee. Um, maybe get stuff in the mempool, and maybe you need three confirmations or six confirmations. It's not the most convenient payment method. It's just sliding your credit card and walking out of the bar. And it's and because of those two reasons, the high cost and the low convenience, it's not widely accepted. Like you can't just go to the Starbucks and, and pay with um, you know an on-chain Bitcoin transaction. Usually, they're using something else. So this is not a new realization. Even back in the early days, um, Halfini knew this would be the case. You know, Bitcoin cannot scale to have every transaction in the world broadcast to everyone, including blockchain. There needs to be a secondary layer, which is lighter weight and more efficient. And so this is why Bitcoin is migrating to a multi-layer ecosystem. But how do we, how do we, if Bitcoin is just a base layer, how do we build on top of that? Well, there's um, 30 years of history from the internet we can look on. Um, when you view some blog article on a website, or you're browsing memes, cat photos, whatever, you're actually seven layers deep in the internet protocols and layer stack. And you might use um, HTML, and HTTP, and TLS, over TCP, over IP, over Wi-Fi, or Ethernet, or fiber optic cables. And we've had decades for the internet to figure this out. And this is how you build a full stack of protocols. And I feel that um, Bitcoin will, will evolve in the same way. So, so far there's only about arguably maybe three layer two networks on top of Bitcoin. And these are all, um, you know, very early, very, very early stage. Um, everyone probably knows the Lightning Network, right? It, it allows you to um, 
Run your own lightning node? Yeah, lightning's awesome. Users open payment channels um, with, with each other, peer-to-peer, -peer, and then you have some payments back and forth. And even if I don't have a payment channel directly with you, I might have a payment channel with somebody else, as a channel with somebody else, as a channel with somebody else. And you can do these multi-hop payments to pay the guy you actually want to pay. And this is also how the internet is structured. Um, we might not all be using the same ISP, but my ISP is connected to some other guy who's connected to your ISP, and that's how the body on the internet works. And so this is what the Lightning Network looks like today. It, it's got thousands of nodes all over the world and tons of payment channels. Um, there's something like 1,400 Bitcoin locked into the Lightning Network and over 20,000 nodes. So it's, it's really happening uh, in terms of uh, adoption. It's just, this is probably the coolest layer 2 network um, that, that solves the, uh, the Bitcoin problem. And so there's custodial Lightning wallets, of course, and the self-hosted. I, I'm not going to get into the risks. Um, you should use self-hosted Lightning wallets if you can, but it's also reasonable if you have 100 bucks on your phone to just use a custodial one so you don't have to deal with running your own node. There, there's trade-offs to both. But the important thing is to use Bitcoin as a store of value so you get all the inflation, uh, seizure, and censorship-resistant properties of it, and also um, the low cost and convenience of using Lightning as a, as a medium of exchange. It's getting more popular as it does. This will probably be the primary way to do everyday payments. Um, so the, another layer two network is the liquid network. And this is a bit different from Lightning in the sense that it's not um, uh, individuals peering with each other. It's actually um, about 50 enterprise companies that formed a federation. And um, the, the security model and everything is a bit different. Um, you, you pay funds into Liquid, it's secured by the Federation, and then you can um, trade funds uh, with any of the members. And so they're all kind of financially, they're kind of, they're kind of like miners in a way, but kind of not. They create blocks and they put transactions into blocks and you can trade with them. But uh, there's some trade-offs, right? You're dealing with these group of uh, almost 50 companies now, uh, pretty large exchanges on here. But if you're doing business with any of these exchanges or multiple, you know, two or three of them, it makes sense to use Liquid to, to send between each other. But the way they um, kind of become censorship resistant is a very different model. They use jurisdictional arbitrage. So say there's 15 functionaries and two of them or one of them is in a different country. You have 15 different functionaries for different countries. Um, it's hard for governments to really put pressure on them effectively because they can all kind of throw their hands up and say, well, I don't know. The other guys are doing it, it's not me. You have some plausible liability. And so far, there's almost 3,000 Bitcoin in the Liquid Network. It's almost 60 members now, and uh, 15 functionaries. It's, it's slowly getting some adoption, but it's not quite to the level of um, lightning yet when it comes to everyday things. And because it's governed by a federation, um, you're trusting the collective Liquid Federation. Uh, if all of the, if 11 of 15 of the functionaries wanted to do something, and they really collaborate together, they might be able to um, do something. So it's not good as a, a store of value, but it might be good as a medium of exchange. You still want to keep your Bitcoin funds in cold storage on main chain, but Liquid might be cool for some medium of exchange use cases or uh, trading use cases. Um, the last layer two network I want to talk about is BISC, which is a project that I really love. It's a different type of layer two network in the sense that it's not payments, it's about trading. And so um, it allows Bitcoiners to trade fiat, like real cash in your bank account for Bitcoin directly without KYC. Um, it's also a similar type of federated model, but it's not run by companies, it's run by uh, cypherpunk guys. So like 
individuals like me, um, you know, there's like 15 or 20 guys that run it. A lot of them are pseudonymous. We don't know who they are, but this is the great place to go if you want to buy Bitcoin and stack stats without the IRS knowing about it. Um, the decentralized governance structure is like, okay, you got these 20 cypherpunk guys basically running it, and the users trade directly with each other. They trade, they set all the trades outside of this, and uh, if there's a dispute with the trade partner, the federation will resolve it for you with mediation or arbitration, uh, different ways. So check out this, it's a great way to buy Bitcoin, it's like a desktop app, to trade directly without KYC. Um, there's already been like 100,000 trades on this between Bitcoiners. No KYC, so the project's doing great. Um, and KYC is the illicit activity. It's our slogan. So um, the next step is is what's going to be on top of these layer two networks. It's basically going to be um, the application layer, right? So whatever um, you know, whatever applications you can imagine, such as um, mobile apps like Lightning wallets that run on top of the Lightning network. That you know, Lightning is running on top of the. Uh, the Bitcoin network, the Bitcoin network's running on top of uh, the internet. All of these, um, this full stack is, is kind of like the future, and it's gonna look a lot like the internet uh, does in terms of a full uh, stack of, of layers of protocols. So if you um, if you have a Raspberry Pi full node at home, this is a great way to use the Bitcoin full stack. Um, there's this really cool operating system now called Umbrel that actually has a self-sovereign Bitcoin app store. You can install BTC Pay, you can install Mempool. Um, there's there's um, you know going to be a bunch of apps developing off of this architecture where you run your own Bitcoin node, you run your own Lightning node, and then the application layer on top is going to be something like this or something like Mempool or um, even other more fun things like. Um, if you want to watch videos and pay the creators directly to uh, kind of like a Patreon system, but directly with Bitcoin for their content, this is a good example of an application layer that runs on top of the layer two networks and the, um, the other things. So you got to pick the right tool for the job, basically. You know, sometimes it makes sense to pay cash. Sometimes it makes sense to do a bank transfer or pay with a credit card. But when it comes to storing your life savings and your net worth, you probably want to do it um, in a Bitcoin on-chain, right? And if you're doing between exchanges, maybe Liquid is a good use case, or if you're buying uh, coffee at the cafe, maybe Lightning is the right use case. Um, you really have to evaluate. All of these are just tools and options, and there's going to be more things. Maybe sometimes you know Twitter is better for discussion, or Instagram is better for photos, and, and everything has its own trade-offs, and you've got to evaluate these on your own and do your own research. So um, thank you very much for coming to my talk today. A mí eso me afecta mal. ¿Por qué? ¿Cómo le afecta? Bueno, porque el pobre no come completo. ¿Qué está comiendo usted ahorita en este momento? Lenteja, y arroz. Y no come carne, no he estado productor de carne. Pero carne si vale 30 mil kilo of meat for 30,000 bolivars, more than twice the country's average monthly wage. Many people are angry and afraid. 
Protests have swept the country, in the capital, Caracas and elsewhere. Security forces have responded with violence. Hundreds of people have been killed. We were able to determine that some people were killed because their names were on the government's food assistance list. The people in charge of those lists informed the security authority that they'd taken part in anti-government protests. It's very worrying. The lists are a form of social control. They determine who has a right to food. And they determine who's for or against Maduro's government. So I was actually just talking to a friend who is a miner in Venezuela, and he's telling me that there's the, the government wants to create a national pool, but the local miners are creating their own like independent pools to kind of go against that, uh, or you know to like have an alternative to that. So there's a bit of um, it's, it's it's an interesting landscape. It's it's in development. Um, mining is still very cheap in Venezuela um, because um, electricity prices are uh, very low artificially low set by, by the government. Um, and on the more the payments and like usage, usage of money side, Bitcoin is used for remittances very heavily in Venezuela. We see uh, exchanges just, such as local Bitcoins and Binance that have grown in value, uh, grown in volume a lot. And uh, you know people are using Bitcoin as an intermediary currency to send money home, especially from Colombia, which is the, the top country hosting uh, asylum seekers and, and Venezuelan migrants. And um, uh, also, Venezuelans who live there um, obviously want to get out of the Bolivar because it's the world's shittiest shitcoin, <laughs> if I might say. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's pretty much what's what's going on right now. It's uh, I, I wouldn't say that there's mass adoption of, of Bitcoin in Venezuela. Uh, we're still far away from that. But Bitcoin is being used uh, by a lot of people without them knowing that they're using it. So that's important. All right. And uh, Boaz, I know that Cuba is like, is a bit more, it sounds like in Venezuela, there's, you know, the government is involved and they're, you know, they're kind of doing diff different kinds of attacks. They're trying to, they're kind of trying to play the industry a little bit. How is that different from the situation in Cuba that you've done a lot of work, work on? So like, uh, Cuba's interesting because the Cuban government is not very good at managing technology. In fact, they're like, you know, 60 years behind on and everything that's tech. Um, but, you know, I, I found the, the, the topic of this panel quite interesting because, you know, what to do when, you know, your, your country, what if your country bans Bitcoin? And I wanted to point out that, you know, 200 miles south of here, you know, Bitcoin is effectively banned in Cuba, right? Like, if, if you, none of, none of the companies, none of the sponsors that are here um, would allow you to access them if, if you were in Cuba, right? So if, if you're in Cuba, you have no access to any of the crypto infrastructure that we see here. You can't, you can't buy your Bitcoin on PayPal. You can't buy it on Coinbase. You know, you just don't have access to it. But at the end of the day, Bitcoin doesn't care. You know, it still works. Yeah, so t t talk about that. So, like, what tools are people using to get access to it? Are they just using open source wallets? Are they using VPNs to route around potential, you know, country bans? What does it actually look like to, uh, you know, get, to get adoption going in a country where there's no legal, official way, way to access the networks? Yeah, so, so you have to actually... Actually, I, I wanted to demonstrate it right now, in fact. Um, so every step of the way, if you live in Cuba, you have to evade censorship in order to receive or transact with Bitcoin. 
because it's it's on levels that I think most of the people here on the stage are not familiar with. Like most, many of the light wallets don't work because you know effectively there's geo blocking. You cannot access any sites. Effectively, you know, if you're Cuban, you cannot use Coinbase, you cannot use PayPal, but you can't even use local bitcoins. You can't even use Paxful, right? So none of these sites work. So what what do people do? You know, it's it's in the at the end of the day, it's very peer to peer. There's like a, a, a few small local initiatives, and it and it you know and it works. And in fact, I, I wanted to demonstrate it. And uh, you know, one one of one of my pet peeves is like you know, often you see people on Twitter and you know everywhere say, well, why don't people just use PayPal? You know, like why why don't you just use PayPal? And you know, it, I, I want to you know challenge the audience. I want to I want to send some Bitcoin right now, a hundred bucks to a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur in Cuba. So it's, it's fine by OFAC rules, by all sanctions rules, it's completely fine. And I think we're going to get the QR code up as well in case you guys want to send him something. Like, it's completely fine by OFAC rules to send money to this person in Cuba. But in practice, because of the compliance burden, you can't do it. It's, it's just not possible to do it. So right now, what I'm going to do is, you know, here in Florida, in Miami, I'm going to send some money to Cuba. And that's it. It's done. It worked. You can't do that on PayPal. You can't do it anywhere else. That's why I think Bitcoin is amazing. Absolutely. And this, this is an audience participation, participation event. If anyone wants to donate, donate a couple stats to, uh, to the, the cause of sending money to an entrepreneur in Cuba, can you tell us just a little bit more about, the, about this guy before we you know, give him yeah, yeah, give yeah, a little yeah. bit so of our money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so you know, if, you, if you don't want to break American laws, you have to you know, be aware of the fact that this is someone that's self-employed, he's an entrepreneur, the American government on paper you know, wants to promote entrepreneurs in Cuba. But in practice, you're a Cuban entrepreneur. You want to get a website, you're fucked. Like, how are you going to get a website? You don't have a credit card. You don't have a debit card, you know? And, and even if, if you did, like, you know, Google Cloud will block your domain, you know? They will block you from hosting. They will block you from a lot of these things. And for these people, it's absolutely essential that they can transact using Bitcoin because there's no other tool that they can use to buy a website, to set up a domain, to, to do anything, manage payments, anything other than Bitcoin. So if you want to buy hosting, you want to do any, anything that we take for granted, they need to use Bitcoin. It's not a coincidence. I think that, you know, like BitRefill, um, you know, the, the, the number two country which, which Google's BitRefill the most in the world is Cuba. It's not a coincidence. It's absolutely essential. Yeah, absolutely. So I can kick it over to, to, to Matt now. And, you know, we're talking about Venezuela and Cuba. And if you're, you know, look at these countries, these are countries on OFAC sanctions lists. They've been obviously targeted by the, by the U.S. government for, you know, for, for these sanctions. And it's going to really restrict how much you're able to, you know, you're able to, tr to transact with them. At the same time, there's kind of this trade-off where it does seem like, you know, if you're if you're the U.S. and you're trying to like undermine that, you know, you're trying to undermine that government, there might be some value in the individuals there transact transacting. Do you think that that impacts how you know policymakers in the U.S. think about this and think about it when it comes to overall, you know, their overall view on on Bitcoin? I mean, it should. You know, regulators should think about that. They should realize that if we get uh, financial sovereignty into the hands of people who are oppressed by authoritarian regimes, uh, those people will get stronger and uh, they'll be able to push back against those kind of um, oppression, right? Um, but the issue is it really does feel uh, that there's a, there's a disconnect, right? Yeah. And in, unfortunately, in our regulatory environment, 
uh, people don't like to make waves. Uh, they get greedy. Uh, they want to protect their own self, and they're not willing to actually step up um, and make massive policy changes. But it's really important that people realize that you know, and it's kind of funny. It's I mean, funny is the wrong word, but Bitcoin benefits the Venezuelan people significantly, but it also at the same time benefits the Venezuelan dictatorship, right? And there's a, there's a balancing act that has to be played there and there should be some nuance in the policy rather than just say straight up, no, you know, you can't do transactions. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it does, when I think about, you know, potential risks to Bitcoin and to Bitcoin adoption, to Bitcoin users in, you know, more of the Western world and the U.S. and in Canada, um, I, the question that comes up to me is like, how are they going to navigate that? You know, how should they navigate it? And then also, you know, also, how are they going to, going to be capable of navigating that? And so, Francis, I'll, ask, I'll push this over to you. You know, with Cuba, you have the ban that sounds like it's not super effective. There's ways to route around it. With Venezuela, there's not a ban, but the government's heavily involved, and they're going to try to you know, take control of some of the infrastructure. What do you see as some of the risks of like, ways in which the usage of Bitcoin could be attacked in the more Western countries? You know, if you think it's a ban, that's certainly one way. But what are, what are some other ways that, uh, you know, that you think regulators and policymakers might try, to rein, you know, might try to rein this in and gain kind of more control mm -hmm. over, the, uh, over the industry? I mean, it's very, very difficult to attack Bitcoin head on. I think we have reached a point. I don't want to <clears throat> you know, jump the gun here, but I mean, I think we're reaching a point where a straight up state attack against Bitcoin would fail. So the thing that people can do to change Bitcoin is to slowly nudge it in the wrong direction and reallocate resources of funding for certain projects of infrastructure that are not, for example, cypherpunk privacy-oriented projects. Um, <clears throat> Hyper-Bitcoinization, if it happens right now, everybody's going to be on custodial platforms. Everybody's going to be on de-anonymization platforms. Everybody's going to be on those, those, uh, those exchanges. Um, we are not ready to have hyper Bitcoinization with the cypherpunk tools. Um, so all we have to do essentially to hurt Bitcoin is to not invest in those infrastructure projects, right? So um, nudging Bitcoin for, that's why narrative is really important, you know? So Bitcoin is a social consensus, is a social animal. Um, when you're thinking about, you know, why, why did Bitcoin defeat attacks like Segwit2x, like Bitcoin Unlimited and those things? It was because of the community of insiders, of builders, of, infra of, of infrastructure um, creators um, that came together and developed this narrative that running your own nodes makes you a Bitcoiner, uh, owning your own keys makes you a Bitcoiner. And this narrative did not exist like four or five years ago. Nobody was really talking that much about the importance of running nodes, owning your own keys a little bit more. But this narrative that we've kind of instilled since 2016, 17, um, you know, if we have a new narrative that's coming in and that says, actually, you know what? Bitcoin is not really for payments. It's all about number go up. You know, who cares about privacy? Because anyway, blah, 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 blah. Um, if that narrative catches on and you're like a new infrastructure builder or you're a financier in the system, um, why would you finance censorship resistant payment platforms or privacy wallets and so forth and so on? Um, so I think that uh, the thing that could hurt Bitcoin is simply us standing by doing nothing let all the normies get onto the custodial platform. I, honestly, I don't want hyper-Bitcoinization to happen that fast because I think we need a few years to build infrastructure to allow the users to opt out of the custodial and centralized and de-anonymized platforms, at least to be able for them to have tools. And another thing is, a lot of people say, oh, sure, if they ban Bitcoin, it's fine. I have all of these really niche tools in my... 
But do we want to have second class Bitcoiners, the normies that are not able technologically to use these tools to be left out from censorship resistance? Like, okay, great. Yes, if they ban Bitcoin, we're going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. I know how to use Bitcoin. Uh, I have sophisticated tools, but the normies will not. So um, I, I'm not a huge fan of the, of the narrative that says, you know, let the government do whatever they want. We'll be fine because we simply don't have the tools yet for the average person to be fine. is that the shoddy reporting on this story was not from Gary Webb. It was from his corporate-backed detractors. Now, I had a drink with a major figure at the LA Times, and I asked him about the crackdown. And he said, look, there were meetings in the building that they weren't going to let a guy from San Jose, California, come into their turf and win a Pulitzer Prize. As the press attacked Gary Webb, the public protested. I got involved with the protests because Gary Webb, he had no hidden agenda. He's not lying. And we're going to put the CIA in this country on notice. With the national media calling for a retraction of Webb's story, his own newspaper took action. The American news was behind Gary, 100% while he's writing it. And then because of the backlash from the other media, they also backpedaled away from Gary. In the beginning, they were behind you. Oh, that's right. And then they caught then they caught a world of hell from the establishment media, and now they're not behind me anymore. And, you know, my, my belief in Bitcoin, you know, it's, it's an amazing asset. Um, but my belief is the Internet needs a native, native currency. We need to be able to transact with this every single day. And everyone around the world needs to transact with it every day. So the only reason um, Square got into Bitcoin is to that end. It's not just to be an exchange. And that's why we don't deal with any other currencies or coins, um, because we're so focused on making Bitcoin the native currency for, for the Internet. So it's... <clears throat> Meeting, meeting, meeting Elizabeth and, um, and team. How can you say that this is a currency for everyone in the world when you are the king of censorship? Bitcoin is about decentralization, and you have no right to be here today speaking about this. We're working on that, too. We're working on that, too. We'll, 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 we'll get to that. We'll, I, I get it. We'll, we get to that. Can you, can you please? We'll, we'll get to that. I promise. Thank you. We can talk about it. We can talk about it. We can talk about it. Um, well, why don't we just go right to that? I was going to talk about it later. Um, um, we hear a lot about censorship, right? Um, 
maybe we'll let this settle down for a second. Um, no, we'll hit we'll hit on that briefly. It's obviously very important. Um, we'll talk about it. Uh, can social media be more like Bitcoin? Bitcoin is censorship resistant. Nobody controls it. What do you, what is your thought on that? What, what is your thought on this? It's a thorny problem. Um, yes, I I do believe it can. Um, I know there's a number of you out there who disagree with a lot of actions that Twitter has taken. I know there's a lot of I know there's I know there's a, I know there's a lot of you out there who who disagree with our policies and, and the way we've evolved them. I appreciate that. I recognize it. I also recognize the fact that um, there is an incentive and a corporate incentive and a business incentive that is different than what might be needed. Uh, for global communication, for public conversation. And my goal in my life in this moment is to remove as much as I can the corporateness of our companies and find better intersections with the open source community. Certainly, Bitcoin has taught me that with Square, and we're doing everything in our power. We're doing everything in our power to do that. And we're trying to do the same thing with Twitter by creating a new platform, a new open source standard called Blue Sky. We're just starting it. And it will have none of the restrictions that you see on Twitter. So inspired entirely by inspired entirely by Bitcoin, we want to do the same thing for social media. And again, I know you're not going to believe me. I know you're saying liar. I'm going to prove it to you. <laughs> and then we can have another conversation later. Yeah, well, look... Um when we look at something like Lightning, it's not just a payments network. It can, ask, it can also be like a censorship-resistant social media platform. There's folks out there building stuff like Sphinx, which I highly recommend you pursue. Sphinx is amazing. Sphinx is really cool. Basically, what you can do is you can follow your favorite creators, maybe like your favorite podcast, maybe you're following what Marty and Matt are doing or something like that, and you can go into a tribe on Sphinx and you can just stream them censorship-resistant private money on Lightning and nobody can stop you. And that's happening. That's inevitable. It's coming. So this vision of like, you know, streaming money to the people that you care about in a way that the government cannot stop, uh, I know that the, that's what Laura wants uh, and that's what you all want where you're upset with Twitter. Well, guess what? It's coming and nobody can stop it. So I think that that's a... Uh, a pretty interesting segue into, you know, maybe getting back to, to the idea of Lightning, what it is, uh, and, and why you at Square, and especially Square Crypto, have, have, have focused so heavily on it, as opposed to, like, you could have done a lot of other things, right? Like, why the focus on Lightning? Uh, again, it goes back to the currency. Like, um, you know, Square Crypto and, and Steve and team and Matt uh, have been focused on making sure that any wallet can easily turn on Lightning and make it um, accessible to everyone. So, the more people we have considering using Bitcoin for payments, um, for tips, for streaming money, yeah. um, the stronger this ecosystem is and the, the more we achieve our goal. Yeah, I mean, look, we're really building out 
like a parallel economy here that, again, is not controlled by governments or corporations. And I, I just wanted to show you, like, how this works, and then maybe Jack and I can, can reflect on this a little bit. Our friend Jack Mahlers has created a company called Strike, um, with a lot of help from a lot of other people. Amazing Bitcoin company. Um, and he started a campaign recently to help Bitcoin development. So I'm, I'm on the Strike page right here. All right, and I'm going to go ahead and, and donate, you know, two dollars worth of Bitcoin uh, to Strike. Okay, so I'm going to copy that Lightning invoice. I'm going to go to my Moon Wallet created by an awesome team in Argentina, and I'm going to send that Bitcoin right now, and it is going to go, and it's gone. That's a bear asset that has just moved instantly around the world, and I didn't ask permission from anybody. So again, when we get back to this like conflict about how are we going to build a social media? How are we going to communicate with each other without censorship and surveillance? It's through Bitcoin. So, I mean, I just want to underline, uh, you know, that's why I think Jack is, is kind of so persistent in this, because it must be such a freaking struggle to watch the entire world, you know, criticize everything you do. And I, I think that's fair. We, we should do that and hold you to a high standard. We should definitely do it. We should definitely um, do it, and I appreciate but, it. But it's not like some magic fairy dust. This is real. Like, lightning is real, and, and I just sent a bearer asset around the world, and nobody could stop me. I didn't have to ask any permission. I didn't have to prove my identification. This is an actual revolution. This is the revolution. So when, when we talk about... Um, Bitcoin and Lightning, if we're going to build it the right way, it's got to be non-custodial. Now, minutes before you walked on stage, you announced something pretty big that you guys are going to do uh, at Square. Do you want to talk about your vision for like non-custodial Bitcoin use? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're considering building a um, non-custodial hardware wallet. Um, and the thing we want to do is make it um, completely in the open. So from all of our software to all of our hardware design, will be open source. It'll be on GitHub. Uh, we want to build it in collaboration with the community. So we started a thread today just asking some questions about our design principles. Um, we don't want to compete with the hardware wallets out there. We just want to take it to the next level and get to 100 more million people um, who have non-custodial solutions. Uh, and we're likely to do it sometime very soon. But we wanted to make sure that we're thinking about this in the correct way and we're reaching out to the right folks in the community to build it. Yeah, I mean, I think that non-custodial use of Bitcoin is so important. And Satoshi, the creator of Bitcoin, knew this. Um, just a little tidbit for the audience here. Satoshi chose his or her birthday as, as April 5th, okay? April 5th was the day that the United States government uh, basically, you know, banned private ownership of gold in 1933. So when Satoshi was designing Bitcoin, he or she was thinking about how the U.S. government centralized and confiscated gold away from the people and how they could make a system that could prevent that. Pick me 
That's uh, day one at the Bitcoin conference. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun putting it together for y'all. Um, it looks like Peter McCormick is going to give that lady a chance to talk on his uh, podcast. So it looks like she's going to be able to, to speak. And um, yeah, I also put the uh, put the cards for, for Wizz's talk um, on Lightning on my Twitter. So if you guys want to see what he was talking about when he was discussing like BISC and everything like that, um, head over to my Twitter. I put all his his cards or I guess his PowerPoint slides on there. Uh, I think there's like a total of like eight or nine really informative stuff. Um, and then also check the um, check our Instagram. I'm also going to be adding some pictures from the conference uh, that I took randomly of people and of the whole area. Um, this week probably i'll probably do that on wednesday or tomorrow at some point but uh yeah i took a lot of pictures over like a thousand it was it was a lot of fun uh there's so many there's a uh a captain a bitcoin captain america <laughs> have a picture of that that was really cool um so yeah check that out say one of the greatest things about coming to these conferences is the people the the people that you meet the people that you converse with um sometimes it's, it could even be life-changing for some of those people i can't tell you how many regular people i talk to in miami uh just about bitcoin and i'm talking about regular people of the city not at the conference and what makes me so bullish is when I was talking to these regular people, they knew about Bitcoin and they knew that their mayor was all in on Bitcoin. They just didn't know why. And when they saw that there was a conference there and that all these people were there, they were then interested in finding out more. And whenever I go to these conferences and to these new cities, I, I always try to get a lay of the land and try to understand the people that are living there. Because at the end of the day, Bitcoin is made for those people. Uh, it's not made for the ad shilling companies that are at these conferences. It's not made for those billion dollar investors. It's not made for those whales. It's not made for those people. It's made for the everyday people that are working, that are having to grind every day just to make a living. Bitcoin's made for those people. So I do my best to talk to them, try to educate them, and that's all I can do. 